Uh, Today's reading is in Matthew chapter 5, which is on page 969 in the Church Bibles. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 5 and beginning at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if any of you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Advers- with your adversary, I can't say it. With your adversary, I can't. Sorry. Who is taking you to court? Do it while you are still together, on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. You've heard it said, or that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, 
for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to, oh, you don't need that. I'm going to invite uh, Rene up. He's come to teach us this morning. Um, I think probably many of you will know her an awful lot better than I do because we only met last <coughs> year on about Sorry. week one of me being here. Um, but Rene is, um, well, she's got, I'm just going to ask her to just tell us a little bit about who she is and what she does before she preaches. And then I'm going to pray for her. So you just give us a little rundown and then I'll, I'll pray. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. My name is Rene. I know my accent is slightly different to yours. Um, I bring you greetings this morning from St. John's Parish in Weinberg, Cape Town, which is where I worship and serve, and also from um, the community that I work with, The Warehouse, um, which is one of your mission partners. So thank you so much to all of you for your support um, for us at The Warehouse. I am um, in London, or in England, I'm not in London. Not in London. I am in it's England um, because one of your other mission partners, Tear Fund, is hosting a justice conference um, next weekend. And so I've come to speak at the justice conference and <clears throat> thought that it would be uh, a good thing to continue in our relationship with one another and stay in contact, especially with Brenda. And so let's... Tim know that I was coming out and he invited me here this morning. So thank you for that invitation. Um, the Warehouse, which is the NGO that I work for, has come out of St. John's Parish and um, seeks to, as you might have heard before, um, serve the church so that the church more faithfully responds to issues of poverty, injustice, and division in South Africa. If you know anything about South Africa, the word apartheid might mean something to you. Um, and so we've grown up, I grew up in a South Africa that um, lived under the laws of apartheid and of course in 1994 all of those laws changed and Nelson Mandela became our first democratically elected president. And what we found um, maybe 10 years on post-apartheid, um, realized that even though apartheid has ended, the laws of apartheid created systems that cause injustice and poverty and cause division. And these systems still exist today. And so in a country that has 75% of its population who attends church at least one, wow. one day a week. That's a lot. 75%, mm. that's a lot. Um, and we are the country that has the largest economic inequality in the world. Um, for those who are economists, the Gini coefficient is what the instrument is to, to measure that. So great diversity um, with the disparity of wealth, 1% of the population owning more than 80% of the resources. Um, and that's largely racial, mm. almost exclusively racial. Um, and at the same time, we, we have this high you know, percentage of South Africans who go to church. And so there's, there's a mismatch there because yeah. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so um, we, we work with churches to sort of examine again afresh what, what are the lenses through which we read Scripture, what's the posture we take as we read Scripture that somehow seems to make this okay when clearly what Jesus teaches um, is different. To very that. different. So, yeah. 
Thank you so much. Please do chat uh, with Renee afterwards. Are you staying for coffee? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm going to pray for her and then we'll thank you. hand it over. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, Renee, for her love of you, for the calling that you have on her life, for her service, her faithful walk with you. Thank you for using her for your glory, for your kingdom. Father, we pray now as she brings your word to us that you might fill her with your spirit, that she might teach us faithfully and that we might have soft hearts to learn, to grow, to walk closer with you as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Fran. Over to you. Thank you, Fran, and thank you, Tim, for the invitation of being with you um, this morning. My prayer is that God would open his word to our hearts and open our hearts to his word. Now, when I had a very brief conversation with Tim, we, um, I suggested that I use just the lectionary readings for this morning, and um, I know <coughs> excuse me, that we had the gospel reading, which is Matthew chapter 5, read to us. But um, in my preparation, what I did was used all the readings of the lectionary for today and kind of wove them together to bring us to Matthew as a sort of principal text. Um, so forgive me for starting in Genesis, we will get to Matthew, and it won't be 45 minutes, Fran. <laughs> um, so yes, as I said, my name is Rene, and um, the, I think I would say that this, not starting point, in, in this conversation, especially in South Africa, where we look at how can we be Christian and so unequal at the same time? And how can we call ourselves such a Christian nation with so many injustices? What is it about how we read the Bible that is causing us to ignore these issues that exist very obviously in our neighborhood? Um, and so one of those reflections come from how we understand Genesis. Um, and so there's a woman by the name of Lisa Sharon Harper who wrote a book called The Very Good Gospel, which I highly recommend to you. Um, this is just her reflections that she's done together with Walter Brueggemann on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so three words that I'd like to highlight um, to weave into our, how we understand Matthew. And so the first word is this word good. You know, in Genesis, and God created and said it was? Can you say that together? God said it was? And then God created human beings. Male and female, God created them. And God said it was? God said it was very good. Tof mayot. It was very good, frightfully good, dynamically good, forcefully good is how we understand that kind of goodness. And so, in Hebrew, the understanding of what goodness is is not what is inherent in a thing. So I could say... Oh, this is a very good microphone. But that would be a Greek understanding of goodness. In Hebrew, we don't speak about goodness being inherent in something. We talk about goodness that exists between things. Do you hear the difference? Goodness resides between the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Goodness resides between the people 
and the earth. Adam, Adama, there is goodness, but not just goodness, forceful, dynamic goodness. And so what that looks like is that the goodness in my relationship with Brenda that sits between us produces goodness in an introduction to Tim, which produces goodness in me meeting Fran. And then that goodness is that I'm here today. Well, your call on whether that's a good thing or not. <laughs> but goodness is not something that can be contained. And so when the goodness at St. Swithin's becomes dynamic goodness between one another, then this entire city gets transformed. Do you see that? It is forcefully, dynamically good. And so God creates and God says, this is dynamically good. And so we were made, we were made, we were created for goodness. The second word is image. Now in the writings at the time of this Genesis story, um, <coughs> ancient civilizations understood this word image as something relating to power. Now, I, when I sometimes use this example in other parts of the world, and I say, you know, in old movies, especially English movies, they say, stop in the name of the king! And then I get blank stares. People have no idea what I'm talking about. But you guys understand that, right? Maybe I could illustrate this with money. If I went down the, the road and tried to buy something with this money, do you think I'd be able to get anything? But it has Nelson Mandela's face on it. What's wrong with it? You see, his image has no power here. This image might be popular, might be famous, but it holds no authority here. How about this one? I forget what this guy's name is. You think I'd get anything at the store for this? No. His image has no authority here. How about if I went to the store and tried to buy something with this lady? Yeah? Why? Her image has authority here. And so where an image has authority, it declares the extent of this image's reign. Where this has authority proclaims where this image reigns. Thank you for your 10 pounds, friend. We are created in the image of God. Each one of us in the image, the likeness of who God is. And so where we, in the fullness of the image of God, exercise authority, we also declare the reign of God in that place. Similarly, if you burnt a flag with an image of a king, that was an act of treason. Why? Because you declare war against that king. And you could be put to death. When we declare war on the image of God in one another, we diminish the reign of God in that place, and we declare war against God. And so that order, that's what it means for us to be image bearers of the living, reigning God, this King of Kings we sang about not too long ago. And then the last word is that of dominion. Dominion. And so dominion sounds like domination, but it is not. You see, when I'm at home, 
I exercise my dominion over my garden. And what do I do? I fill it with compost. I water my plants. I'm paying a little three and five-year-old to water my plants every day while I'm not there. Me exercising dominion means I make sure that there's no bugs or pests that come to eat them. And so while I'm exercising full control over my garden, the consequences of my dominion is that I provide the space for life to thrive. And so each one of us is given dominion and the ability to exercise dominion. And that dominion is for the goodness <coughs> of the world and for an increase of the image of God. And so to today's readings, bearing in mind these three, these three words, goodness, image, and dominion. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is the reading for today. And so Deuteronomy, I would say, is... is you know, it's in the Old Testament, it's a book full of laws, it's similar to Exodus, it's the conversation that happened between God and Moses on the mountain. Do you remember that? The giving of the Ten Commandments? And so God is busy talking to Moses, as God would with a friend, giving to Moses God's blueprint for this goodness, this community, this people of God that Israel will become. And, and in these laws, God is saying, this is how you will become this good community that extends my reign through being image bearers. And so, these laws that God give is, is not just a list of suggestions. It comes to us as commandments. And, and the language is quite firm. It says, choose this day, life or death. It's not just, hey guys, I have a great idea of how St. Swithin's can be amazing. It's like, there's only one way we're going to be amazing. Everything else is death. The stakes are very high in this language of Deuteronomy. All of these laws are written so that it will produce life, so that it will produce goodness, so that it will enhance the image of God in one another. That's chapter 30 from verse 15 to 20. And then the psalm is Psalm 119, that chorus we sang, your name is like honey on my lips. That's from Psalm 119. The laws of the Lord is like honey dripping down, like honey from the honeycomb, not just creamed honey in a jar. This is what God's word is like nourishing and sweet and life-giving. And so it, it's this beautiful, very, very long psalm that talks about all the virtues of, that comes with obeying the law of the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to us. And again, he's, it seems a little bit like a different tangent, but he's also talking to us about this design, this original design, this dream of God for us as the people of God. And he says, well, where do your quarrels and arguments come from? This is not part of what God has designed. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, for we are God's servants working together in God's field for God's kingdom. 
And so I said that would be a very quick run-through of those passages. We are now turning to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Now, a few things to note about Matthew. Um, The first is Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. And so the thing we know about this Jewish audience is they would all know the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so Matthew, in his gospel, divides this long gospel into five sections. The first section of Matthew is like Genesis, the story of origins. And this is the second section of Matthew, which is the beginning of the law. If I were to commission an artist to paint a picture of Matthew chapter 5, it would need to look a little bit like Jesus on a mountain, teaching a crowd of people. If I were to ask that same artist to paint a picture of Exodus and Deuteronomy, it would be Moses on a mountain teaching about God's law. Do you see that? Very similar image. And so this this section in Matthew comes and mirrors to us what the law is. And so you'll hear a lot of words in this gospel reading. It is written, but I say to you. It is written, but I say to you. Because Jesus is not just the word, but the living word. Jesus comes to fulfill everything that the law has invited us into. Jesus comes to bring us a renewed picture a reminder of God's dream, this manifesto of God that now finds its life in this teaching of Jesus. And so as you um, listened to the reading, you'll see the first section there is um, concerning relationships. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with someone, you're liable to judgment. If you insult your brother or sister, you're liable to the council and in danger of the fires of hell. Isn't that a bit intense? Now, what sits behind this? I mean, is it okay to be angry? Anyone? I mean, I mean the dangers of the fires of hell. You see, in this relationships that we have with one another, there's anger and then there's anger. Murder doesn't just happen. Murder comes from somewhere. Murder is unchecked anger that is allowed to spiral out of control. And so this invitation here is pay attention to the things that make you angry. Pay attention to them because they are one step in a continuum towards what is considered murderous or even the act of murder. It's an invitation for us to check our relationships with one another, to become aware not only of who it is who stirs us the wrong way, but what's actually going on inside our own hearts. Desmond Tutu once said, and he was quoting someone, but he couldn't remember who he was quoting. 
If someone angers you, they control you. And you can no longer be controlled by the Spirit of God. If someone angers you, they control you. And you can't be controlled by the Spirit of God. And so the reason we need to pay attention to the things that anger us is because it stands in the way of us being able to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And that's ultimately what we want. Amen? Now, verse 23 of chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, when I was a teenager, you have to forgive me, but this is real. This is what the church did. They said, here's evidence in the Bible for why God says lust, pornography, and masturbation is out. If your eye causes you to sin, <laughs> coach it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, that's a reduction of what's written here. But whenever we read that, that was like, oh, can you see the Bible says pornography and masturbation is wrong. But may I suggest to you today that that's not all that this passage is saying. That's a simplification of the invitation, remember God's blueprint for how we should live our lives. It's the same kind of choice in Deuteronomy. It's life or death. These are drastic decisions that we have to make. It's as drastic as cutting a part of your own anatomy off your body. Please don't cut off your limbs and take out your eyes. Please don't do that. That is not what this passage is suggesting. But this passage is to wake us up to the serious consequences of indulgent sin, unrepented sin, cherished sin. The consequence of that is death. And so as we come to look at this passage again today, let us be aware that the consequences of our choice is that of life and death. Oh, sorry, I think I gave you the wrong reference, but um, I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting to that other part about the hand and the eye. Verse 23 and 25 is one about our continued relationships one with another. It says, so when... You are offering your gift at the altar, and remember there that your brother or sister has something against you. Not that you have something against them. If you remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift. Don't worship anymore. Don't offer anything to the Lord if you know that someone has something against you. Wow. It seems to suggest in this very short two verses that our relationships one with another is more important than the worship that we offer to God. Can I say that again? Our relationships one with another is way more important to God than our worship of God. 
the relationship and the goodness between us is of greater value to God than any song we could sing or any offering we could bring. Now, what's happened in the church maybe in the last 10 years or so is the professionalization of worship. Have you become aware of that? Tim, do you know that worship leaders make more money than pastors sometimes? <laughs> Record labels, music industries are more profitable than running your own church because worship has been commodified. It's growing faster than people becoming clergy. I feel called to be a worship leader. As if that has nothing to do with anything else that the church does. In Matthew 28, it says, the disciples followed Jesus to the hill. This is Ascension Day that we celebrate. And he stood there and gave them the great commission. It says, they worshipped him, and some doubted. There was no drums, no music set, no song sheets, but they worshipped. Even our worship of God is subject to our relationships one with another. Now, when we think of this um, work that we do at the warehouse, especially using this word justice, essentially that is right relationships between one another. And if the relationships between one another are not dynamically good, then our worship is no good for our community. I've come to realize that it is possible to worship Jesus without following him. And yet Jesus never once said, come, worship me. Do you know that? Not once in the Gospels, not once does Jesus say, come, worship me. But Jesus says over and over and over again, come, follow me. Come, do what I am doing. I can promise you one thing today. If you say yes to following Jesus, you will need to worship Jesus so that you can follow. But today in the church, it is possible to worship Jesus and not really follow. And so for that reason, it's important for us to be reminded of these words of Matthew. If you have something to bring, but there remember that someone has something against you, that there's not goodness between you, it is better that we not worship, but follow the example of Jesus in growing right relationships one with another. In that way, we choose life and say no to death. Now, Tim also said, could you say something about justice? I'm not throwing you under the bus. Something about reconciliation, which was that first sec section. The, the second is something about justice. Now, um, <coughs> verse 27 um, onto 37 is um, what I'd like to use to focus on this. So you'll, you'll notice there, again, it is written, but I say to you. It is written, but I say to you. It is written, but I say to you. Jesus is coming to bring fulfillment to these words that were written. 
You see, the systems that I spoke about of apartheid that still exist in South Africa, they were systems that existed in this world of this story. And um, maybe you would remember John's story of a woman caught in adultery. You know that one? Now, you should go, hold on. It surely should be two people were caught in adultery, right? Right? You cannot commit adultery on your own, but it is the woman who gets brought before the commission who are about to stone her. Divorce. All the power is in the hands of a man. If he wants to divorce his wife, women could not divorce men in those days. All the rights stayed with a man. If a man was guilty of adultery, the woman would be named adulteress. If a man didn't want to be married anymore, he would divorce his wife. And he could only do it on the grounds of sexual unfaithfulness. But the decision was still his. And so Jesus is addressing an unjust system. You know the woman at the well who was married six times? The likelihood is that she was never divorced. She was never given a paper of divorce to be released from that relationship, which meant she couldn't live in a faithful relationship, but it also meant she couldn't have access to the economy because women couldn't own property. So you see, when a woman is divorced, she's actually excluded from society. And so in each one of these relationships, there is an imbalance of power. What's the symbol for justice? Scales. Balancing the power in the relationship. That is the work of doing justice, of seeking justice, of calling for justice, finding ways to balance the scales of power in relationships. And so Jesus says, yes, it is written, but I say to you, Balance the power scales in the relationship so that women are not left, abandoned, excluded from society, and excluded from economic activity. I'm not trying to ignore the priorities that God gives to family, but I'm saying within the context of this particular analogy, it is written, but I say to you, the, the overriding thing that Jesus addresses here is unjust systems that bring injustice into society. So, is it possible in a country like South Africa, where we have 30%, more than 30% unemployment, but government says, okay, 29.7, that's 30%, of employment that is sustainable. So they talk about part-time employment and then sustainable employment. So we have 30% unemployment and there are people who are in unsustainable employed situations, which would increase our unemployment statistics quite significantly. Is it possible for someone to negotiate a just wage in a country where 30% of the population is unemployed? How possible is it? 
Do you see the imbalance of power? So that even in wage negotiations in South Africa, the system is set up to create imbalance in power. And so in the times of Jesus, in the time of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' audience of people who suffered the injustice of unbalanced power, of unbalanced economic power, social power, religious power, and political power. And as they listen to these words of Jesus, what they're hearing through all of it is Jesus' invitation to rebalance the scales of power. And so those are, are some of the issues that we, particularly at the warehouse, look at of how within society these unjust systems that create poverty and injustice, how we can address that through using the very words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus to help bring about the society that God dreams of. And then the last thing Tim asked me to, to say something about was global mission. He said one or the other. I'm just throwing all three of them in. And that takes me to Paul's letter in Corinthians. Now, <coughs> I know Matthew speaks about reconciliation, and so this letter of Paul to the Corinthians sort of continues on this trend of broken relationships, quarreling and arguing, saying, I belong to this one, I belong to that one, Conflict in the church. I know you don't have conflict at St. Swithin's, but we have conflict at my church. And people would argue about paint. There's some people you say, actually, it doesn't matter what the issue is. These people will argue about toothpaste. They will argue because their relationship is in conflict, not because of the issues you're dealing with. Now, again, I know that that doesn't happen here, but this was happening in the church in Corinth. And what Paul was inviting people back into was these relationships of goodness that produces goodness, the dynamic goodness of God that is evident in our relationships between one another. And so this is something we work on really hard at the warehouse. We don't succeed, but it's something that we... Um, we're really committed to, and we actually spend time investing in our relationships with one another. Now, I have a lot of friends who live in England, and one of the hot topics I know that has been around for the last two, three years has been Brexit. Can I say that in church? The polls are so extremely divided that people don't even want to talk about it in church. Why can't you talk about Brexit in church? Because we've lost the skill of learning to disagree with one another and still honor one another. If you don't agree with me, then you obviously are this, that, 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 that. The conclusions we jump to. I mean, the same is true in the United States, whether you're a Donald Trump supporter or not. If you're a supporter of Trump, then it means you are. Mm, 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 mm. And if you're a Democrat, that means you are. Mm, mm, mm. And the things that divide us continue to increase. But this invitation from both Matthew and from Paul 
is an invitation into deep relationship. That means for us to be in unity with one another, we need deep disagreement so that we can reach some agreement. Can I say that? It is okay to not agree with one another and not demonize one another either. My politics is probably very different to yours. But that's okay. Because here's what's beautiful. Jesus never once invites us to be right. Only to love. When you say yes to following Jesus, you give up the right to be right. Can you say that to yourself this morning? I have no right to be right. But I have every entitlement to love. I am entitled to bless. I am entitled to forgive. I'm entitled to honor. And let me live into my entitlements as a citizen of the kingdom of God. But I have no entitlement to be right. So here's what Paul says. He says these arguments that come about is not just because we want to be right, but actually because we want honor or glory. Behind the story is a story of self-preservation. But what about me and my kind? And the story of the cross, the story of Jesus, deals a death blow to any story of self-preservation. My blood. We'll, we'll be reminded of those words soon. My blood poured out for you. My body broken for you. And so this invitation to relationship is a very deep one. Archbishop um, Justin Welby says, there is no end, no end to the goodness that the church can do in the world if we don't care who gets the glory. There's no end to the goodness that God can produce in St. Swithin's if we don't care who gets the glory. And so Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, just a little earlier on in this passage, gives to us my concluding words. It's an invitation that says, so let your light shine before all people, that they would see your good works, but give glory to God who is in heaven. And so that's my prayer for us. As we think about the good we want to do in England, in the world, this global mission, this invitation of God, is that what we do would bring glory to God is in heaven. And so, Lord, let it be. Amen.